Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, and with me today is my co-host and fellow Editor-in-Chief. This is Eric Mills, the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine at the U.S. Naval Institute. Eric, happy Monday. You too, Bill. It's deadline Monday for Naval History, so that's always a happy one, right? Always deadlines all the time around here, and uh, we're going to talk to an author today who is in the, uh, the most recent issue of Naval History, the, the one that starts with War in the Falklands, the April issue, which is uh, on newsstands today and in, uh, in our readers' uh, mailboxes and then our, on our website. A terrific, terrific issue. Uh, and, and so why don't I uh, I'll let you introduce uh, our guest today? Oh, well, this is, we're really excited about this one. This is a, a unique and interesting story that had to be told. Uh, it's titled The Mother of Cryptology, and that tells you everything you need to know about it. It's, uh, it's the story of Elizabeth Smith Friedman, a pioneering cryptanalyst in the 20th century. She was at the forefront of every major development. She was like Forrest Gump and that she's there during World War I, uh, the war against rum row and prohibition. Uh, busting crime in the 30s and work for the Coast Guard in the 30s, World War II, uh, just an amazingly fully lived life. And she also was um, a scholar in all sorts of different fields at the same time. So this is obviously um, a fascinating story. And uh, just the person to tell it wrote it for us. Um, and that's Ann Todd, who uh, served in the Coast Guard herself and um, uh, as a Naval Institute Press author as well. Uh, OSS Operation Blackmail is the, the book she did for Naval Institute Press. But today she's here to talk with us, coming live from the National Museum of the Pacific War in Fredericksburg, Texas, about her article, The Mother of Cryptology. And welcome. Thank you. So um, kind of an unsung heroine, wouldn't you say, uh, Elizabeth oh, yes. Friedman? It feels We appreciate what she did now. Uh, as you point out, um, a Coast Guard cutter is uh, named after her. Um, but in her time, she uh, was buried in um, the pages of current events. She didn't receive her time. Well, during um, when she was doing rum running for the Coast Guard, doing prohibition, she was actually kind of a media darling. She made quite a few court appearances and whatnot. It wasn't until World War II when everything went dark when it came to code breaking and no one knew what she did. Yes, yeah. she had an unusual um, relationship with fame. She had a magazine newspaper fame in the 20s, but then the really amazing stuff she does in World War II, she doesn't get any credit for. And you can tell us about that as we talk about it, but let's start at the beginning of this amazing life. Um, tell us about this person and where she came from and how she ended up doing what she did. Well, you know, she came from, as many heroes did, she came from the heartland and um, a Quaker family. Um, her father, I mean, she was a gifted student, but her father did not see why she should need to go to college. She talked him into loaning her the money to go to college. Uh, he charged her 6% interest. So she started out at Wooster College in Ohio, and then she transferred to Hillsdale in Chicago, um, Michigan, actually. She was uh, 
infatuated with William Shakespeare. So, so. she got to a library in Chicago and got her hands on an original folio of William Shakespeare's and it just blew her mind and she wanted a job there. Uh, the librarian put her in touch with a, an eccentric millionaire named George Fabian who had his own think tank on acres and acres of land in the countryside. So she went to work for him because he was obsessed with proving that Sir Francis Bacon was the actual author of Shakespeare's sonnets. And, you know, Francis Bacon worked with uh, binary codes. So Fabian believed, you know, it was all embedded in the, in the, in the sonnets. There was a woman working there who agreed with him. She taught Elizabeth the art of code breaking. Elizabeth met her husband there who was a geneticist. I think they were drawn together by a mutual feeling that Fabian and his assistant were just nuts. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. I never really liked that Francis Bacon was really Shakespeare theory myself, but it at least it brought the Freedmans together. Why don't you it tell is. us a couple? They became like the pretty much the created analysis. Well, um, they learned their craft. Um, they got married in 1917. And so the Zimmerman telegram, as you know, was in 1917. And you know, it came in to a little house in Galveston, by the way. Most people don't realize that. And all of a sudden, the military woke up and realized code breaking is a major issue of national security. So they wanted code breakers. And they couldn't find any. So um, I believe I read that there were four code breakers in the country. And Elizabeth and William were two of them. So um, the military descended upon Riverbank, which was Fabian's uh, think tank. And uh, Elizabeth and William were put in charge of the first serious effort at code breaking in this country, uh, the military. They were quite in demand in World War I, correct? I'm sorry? They were quite in demand in World War I, correct? Oh, oh yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, William began working for the Army uh, Signal Intelligence Service. Um, 1925, the Coast Guard, the, um, the Coast Guard Commandant, Frederick Ballard, I believe that's how you say it, he decided he wanted a, an intelligence center. So the Coast Guard, this was rum running time, the Coast Guard had a series of radio stations all along the East Coast for their search and rescue operations. But they had been picking up these messages. The rum runners were uh, tapping into shipping and, and uh, learning how to elude the Coast Guard. So they had a backlog of messages that needed to be decoded. And so uh, they asked William to head it up but he was busy with the army. So um, the commandant brought Elizabeth on board 
And she immediately began uh, decoding these rum runner um, messages. And I mean, it was in no time at all that she had decoded 650 plus messages on 24 different radio frequency uh, systems. Um, and this is sort of the height of what celebrity she did enjoy. Uh, she's in uh, newspapers, magazines, mm -hmm. but it's a sort of backhanded compliment one might expect in the 1920s. It's, all, it's often framed in terms like it's so amazing. That, that this woman can do right. this. Right, yeah. Look, look at what the little woman can do. Absolutely. Yes. Those, those were the headlines. Yeah. They, they, almost, of course, focused on what she wore. Right. It was kind of a novelty thing. Um, yes. Which is pathetic. But she really was quite multi-talented. Not only did she become a Shakespeare scholar, but a Mayan scholar. And, you know, Mayan archaeology is all about trying to decipher those pictographs, which are really, I mean, to this day, they're still figuring out stuff about how to decipher them. That's a pretty amazing combination. Yeah, talent. you know, uh, that was a little later after um, Prohibition was over in 1934, then the Coast Guard shifted to um, narcotics interdiction. And so, uh, you know, cocaine, heroin. And so that's, that's what she was working on. And in fact, the Canadian Mounties hired her to figure out um, the codes from a Chinese agent and she didn't know Chinese, but she just sat down with a Chinese dictionary and cracked it. And while she was doing that, she was learning, trying to crack the Mayan Codex to pursue a master's degree in archaeology, just by the way. It's just phenomenal. It's like Sherlock Holmes level um, mm -hmm. brilliant. And well, you know, when she was in college, uh, you know, her father didn't think she needed college, but in college, she was an English major, but she also pretty much minored in uh, Greek, Latin, applied science, and Shakespeare. So she was a real Renaissance woman. Indeed she was, and it makes for just fascinating reading. Bill, why don't you... Uh, yeah, it, it amazed me as I read this that she w did not have a mathematical background, that she wasn't uh, you know, trained as a mathematician. And today we think of, you know, most code breakers, we think of the National Security Agency as, you know, supercomputers and, and mathematicians. And, and uh, you know, her, her ability to crack codes was much more based on the, the linguistic rep repetition of, uh, of letters and words and, and, and breaking those out within sequences, which it just fascinated me. Well, um, that is interesting. She really wasn't good at mathematics by her own admission, but she had an, an intuitive gift for discerning patterns. And um, I'm sure your audience has heard of Alan Turing over in England, uh, how sure. he, he uh, Alan Turing, how he um, created uh, an encryption device, a bomb, they called it. And um, what he did was he essentially taught that computer to think intuitively, just like she does or did. And um, so, yeah, people usually think it's, it's all about math. It's not. It's seeing patterns because 
apparently in any code, um, whether it's uh, code, which is uh, replacing words or groups of words or cipher, which is replacing a number or a single letter, sooner or later it repeats and it comes full circle. And it, it all depends on finding that pattern where you see all of a sudden something jumps out at you because it's repeating. So that was her gift, really. It really is a gift. You either have that or you don't. And yeah. To have yeah. the gift and then just refine it to the degree of success, which she did, which um, had such an impact behind the scenes on 20th century history. That's the thing about this sort of subject matter. It's really mm -hmm. kind of what's going on behind the big story that, of history, you know? And well, between Prohibition and the work she did in World War II, she kept quite busy in the 30s as well. Why don't you talk to us about that? Uh, well, in the 1930s and the interwar period, let's see. She uh, did the narcotics interdiction. She cracked some cases. Um, there's a famous one that she and William did together. Uh, some Hindu separatists were communicating uh, with Germany, who was helping them send uh, weapons from New York over to India. Um, William got credit for that and was uh, asked to testify at trial, but one of the other separatists shot the defendant. So that didn't happen. Um, Canada had a, well, a rum runner uh, was, well, no, this was narcotics, was down in the Gulf of Mexico and um, flying on, uh, sailing under Canadian flag. Uh, the Americans, the Coast Guard nabbed them. The Canadians said they were in international waters. And Elizabeth, in a famous trial, was able to show through her decrypts that no, they were definitely in American waters. So some high profile things like that that she did. Yeah, I mean, Hindu separatists and um, illegal deals with uh, Germans behind the mm -hmm. scenes. I mean, it's like the stuff of a pulp magazine story from back then. And it's really, sure. yeah. Um, well, let's look at this for a little bit. Um, she and her husband, by all, by just looking at it, had a wonderful, remarkable relationship together. They were kindred spirits. Um, they had a kindred talent and it was their, their synergy created modern cryptanalysis crypt a little bit. But um it seems all along he's getting credit and she's not. Um, what was, is there any, do we have any sense of what that dynamic was like between them? I mean, I, I guess it's hard to tell if it's not in uh, diaries or letters between them or anything like that. It just, you know, from what I can tell, it just didn't really bother her. Of course, who knows really mm -hmm. um, between married couples, but um, she was a beautiful woman. And so, once the media really found her and uh, decided they approved, then, you know, she did get a lot of attention. What happened was um, in 1939, when it became clear that the Nazis were down in South America and she was noticing a shift in messages and um, everything went dark, including for William. I mean, their work just uh, fell off the face of the earth. He got a lot of credit after the war. 
she got none really. She got a little raise, I think. Um, you know, so you're right. I mean, she just, she just didn't get credit, but from what I've read, it, she just didn't let it bother her. She would just vaguely mention, oh yeah, I'm busy on some spy stuff and just yeah. leave it at yeah. that. I'm, I'm going to work on my Mayan codex now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, in a way that makes her even more impressive that, yeah, um, I know. that her, uh, there's no vainglory in it for her. It's just the mm -hmm. focused on doing, cracking those codes. You know, uh, well, there's a, an excellent book about um, all the women who were pulled out of college right before World War II and put to work for the Navy and the Army on this code breaking. And um, no one knew what they did either. The, the book is uh, Code Girls by Liza Mundy. I'll give a little plug for her book. Um, Elizabeth wasn't the only one. She she did arguably some of the most important code breaking, but there there were many others. Most of them were school teachers because, for example, the army they wanted their women to have a college degree, and the only women at that time that had the opportunity really to have a college degree were school teachers. So. A lot of them, you know, worked at Arlington Hall for the Army. The Navy pulled them right out of class. You know, they didn't even have to have a degree. And can you tell the story about how Elizabeth came on the radar screen of, uh, of Wild Bill Donovan, the, the, the founder of what became, you know, the OSS and then the CIA uh, as, as World War II was kind of heating up? Yes. Well, um, Let's see, I think it was April 1941. Um, J. Edgar Hoover all of a sudden wanted a cryptology unit for his agency. And so he borrowed her from the Coast Guard. And um, she became at that time a fixer. I mean, she just, she was being borrowed from you know, for all the different agencies to come in and set them up a cryptology shop. And of course, Donovan, uh, he had a bad reputation for poaching people from other agencies and from the military. People really didn't like him for that. But the Army and the Navy and the FBI, they really hung on to her and said, we're not sharing. So they're cryptologists. And so he picked on, you know, the smallest organization, the Coast Guard, with uh, their little, by this time it was called Unit 387, uh, which she ran. And so he managed to get her for a couple of months, two or three months, I think it was. This is before the war. He was still the coordinator of information before it became OSS. But he brought her in and she worked day and night, borrowed some encryption machines and got him set up with a really fine um, outfit there. She left one of her Coast Guard lieutenants in charge of it. Of course, after the war, this uh, Lieutenant Leonard Jones got credit for setting up the OSS um, code breaking team. It's crazy. He got awards and all that stuff. So, so there's, there's a recurrent theme here, which is that uh, Elizabeth Friedman does amazing work, and then yeah. uh, other people, mostly men, get get yeah. credit for it. 
Uh, it's, so it's, she just kept moving around. Whoever needed someone, she would go in, maybe with one or two people, set them up, you know, train their agents, and then move on. She always wanted to be back with the Coast Guard, though. Yeah, it's an interesting point that you make it, you know, despite the fact that, that her methodology was very intuitive and not mathematically based, mm -hmm. but she was able to replicate it and teach others how to replicate that that methodology so that it could, as you said, she was a fixer. She could go into OSS or go into the Army or the Navy mm -hmm. or the Coast Guard or FBI and help them set up a, a shop where they could do this kind of uh, cryptanalysis. And then they could they could replicate it and they could mm -hmm. keep it going and be successful. Yeah. And we could move on to where the next problem was, which is, uh, I, I think, it, particularly in that in that um, uh, in that line of work, uh, you know, that could be and I was a naval intelligence officer, so I know that there's, you know, successful organizations and there's those that aren't particularly successful. Yeah. Uh, but being able to help an organization set up a, a, a process and then. Uh, you know, that's pretty noteworthy. Well, I'm sure you know that uh, before all this started, especially before World War Two, the Office of Naval, Naval Intelligence was kind of a dumping ground for people who were considered mediocre officers. Um, maybe they got seasick and couldn't go out on sea duty. So it wasn't until, um, you know, Pearl Harbor, a little before, when they really became desperate for quality code breakers. Um, talk a little bit because it's uh, it was a bit of the history that I was not all that uh, you know up to speed on, but um, the the Nazi um, network, if you will, in Latin America mm -hmm. uh, preceding World War II and then and then even during World War II, what was her role in helping to uncover that? And then um, and then the, you know the U.S. was able to go and 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 kind of clamp down on a lot of those uh, Nazi operatives in, in Latin America and, and South America. Yeah, it really is fascinating. Um, in, I believe it was 1938, 1939, for the Coast Guard, uh, Coast Guard had uh, radio men down in South America, uh, you know, for their, for their uh, drug interdiction and whatnot. And she noticed a shift in the messages that uh, were going back and forth between Germany, uh, the U.S., I think it was New York, and Argentina and Mexico, and asking for sensitive information about shipping and uh, factory capacity, things like that, things you would want to know if you're getting ready for war. And... Um, so she began really paying attention to that and uncovered a net of uh, fascist Nazis down there that were communicating and, and fomenting a revolution in Argentina, trying to get Argentina to go pitch in with the Germans. And um, so, yeah, she, she uncovered all of that almost single-handedly, really. Thousands of uh, decoded messages. And were, was that communication, was that happening via uh, high-frequency radio? Was it HF radio most pr primarily? Uh, it was. These were the ultra decrypts. You know, people usually associate ultra with the Enigma machine. But actually, ultra 
encompassed not only Enigma, but also radio intercepts. And uh, so the intelligence she generated was mainly from the radio intercepts, although she did work with, she did crack two Enigma machines in that, uh, on those operations. Gotcha. Uh, and we have a question from uh, Antonio Brizio. Are there any academic writings on her methods or is there a, an Elizabeth Friedman school that has made an impact in non-military life? Huh. You know, at the end of her life, she began her memoirs. She didn't finish them. And as far as I know, there's not. I think William may have written some things. You know, he he helped crack uh, the Japanese diplomatic purple code, but it ruined his health. He had a nervous breakdown. So I uh, don't think he was really able to get a lot down in terms of instructions. But she taught so many people that basically I met some women in the NSA not too long ago. And they said, you know, the culture of the NSA in terms of code breaking came straight from Elizabeth and the other women code breakers uh, in the war. They, they just set it on its way. And that is so I guess that would be the closest thing to a school. Got it. Can you describe what that culture was? So the women that you met at NSA, how did they describe what the, the culture was that Elizabeth imparted to them? The intuitive. Oh. Um, you know, of course, NSA has amazing machines, but um, they have great respect for people who could come in. And again, it's seeing patterns. You know, you can have all the algorithms in the world, but unless you teach the machine to see patterns, uh, and that has to come from the human, then, you know, you're not going to get very far. That's in their, that's their impression of things. That's fascinating. It, yeah, it gives hope to all of us who hated algebra. <laughs> <laughs> I still hate it. Yeah. No, I, I love hearing about a genius code breaker who was not good at math. Believe me, that really resonates. I know. Isn't it great? Yes. Um, <laughs> well, I'm really intrigued that after World War II, she goes to work for the International Monetary Fund mm -hmm. for a number of years. Do we know what she did there? No, that information is really sketchy. Um, I don't think it's classified, but um, she was a communications consultant. So which, which not sure what that meant. <laughs> Yeah, it could mean anything, right? Yes. It kind of makes you think there's more to that story than we know. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, why don't we, um, you know, we've looked at how through this amazing career of accomplishment and important work for um, and many um, a war front, uh, figuratively and literally, all that she did, you know, she didn't get the due she was deserved. But history finally came around and um, started to realize the, the depth and greatness of her contribution. Um, why don't you tell us a little about how that started to happen when that ball got rolling? Well, uh, as far as I know, it was basically after she died, as is often the case, um, people just putting things together um, like Liza Mundy and, um, um, uh, Mr. Bennett, who writes for the Coast Guard, he he unearthed a lot of 
this. And I just love that this cutter, legend class cover cutter is being named after her. And maybe y'all can tell me, is that thing online yet? Is, is it a real, is it, has it been launched? I don't think it has yet. I, I, I looked that up when I was working on your story. Um, yeah. It's, you know, it's in the works. I keep um, checking. It, it, I was wondering if it, the the unit three eighty seven history wasn't declassified in like two thousand eight, and I bet that had a lot of yes proof positive of what this woman did. Um, right there, yeah, right in fact, didn't look at um, that in two thousand eight. There are there are memos and and decrypts that other people took credit for, but down on the page you see her initials. So I've seen a couple of those. Mm -hmm. Well, thank goodness history is never done, and there's always more to learn about it because uh, the fuller story of the 20th century involves knowing the story of Elizabeth Smith Friedman. No kidding. Um, it's sort of a trivial note because as an editor, this just kept catching my eye. It looks like her first name is spelled wrong. Um, yeah. A little anecdote about that, right? Yeah, her mother uh, just didn't want her to ever be called Liza, so she made that be an E in the middle of her name. It's um, Eliz Abbath, not Eliz Abbath. Of course, what, of course what that meant was her, her name probably got misspelled her whole life. So I almost you know, corrected it. Parents try to make these things happen, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just checked in the, uh, the U S coast guard cutter, Elizabeth Friedman, WMSL 760 is still being built. Um, it was awarded in, in 2018, so I, I would imagine it'll probably be online in another year or two, but we'll be watching for that. And Yes, and that I'd love is, to be there. That is a great story. Um, there was there was another point, uh, back to Eric's point about, you know, how after, uh, you know, after her life, that's when, she, you know, her work was kind of discovered and, and she's got more credit. Um, Describe, there was, there was some... Um, there were some notes and, and things that were done by her husband that also had her initials on them, mm -hmm. correct? And that's how a lot of people kind of realized that she uh, that he didn't do a lot of this work alone, that, that she was very much a part of this partnership. And right. I mean, uh, yeah, that's it. These When these things were uh, declassified, you know, I'm an OSS scholar, and <laughs> I don't know why more people don't write dissertations on OSS. Actually, I do, because even though the material is declassified, it's really uh, hard to get through. Hasn't been uh, arranged very well yet. The person who was working on it died in the archives. And so um, it's my understanding that all of her stuff, uh, you know, these these pages that have been declassified, just because something's declassified doesn't mean it's easy to work with. And I, I have a feeling that's what's going on here, that it's going to take someone to really sit down and go page by page, find every single initial of hers and, you know, make a flow chart of her accomplishments. Yeah, is that is that uh, CIA OSS archives or is that in, in, within the National Archives now? The, uh, the OSS uh, declassifications are, um, that collection is in the National Archives at College Park. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I mean, thousands of documents, boxes and boxes. 
I spent four years in those boxes for one woman. <laughs> well, yeah, like you say, the the fact that you classified is just the beginning. Yeah, oh, yeah. Beginning. It's not. It's like everything's known now. Now the work begins of going in there and finding uh, all the history that's still been unwritten. And um, uh, well, again, she's a very compelling historical figure, and just the idea that she trans she broke a, a Chinese code with a Chinese dictionary, you know, just sitting there and that plus her uh, genius for seeing patterns. Uh, I ask you to speculate if uh, Elizabeth Smith Friedman were here today, um, what would she be able to achieve with the technology that exists now that didn't exist in her time? I mean, it seems like the sky would be the limit. Yeah. Although for her, it was a great deal of patience. You know, I can't stand puzzles myself because um, I don't have the patience, but I don't think it would matter if it was a machine, um, you know, a supercomputer or an iPhone or whatever. If she got on the trail of something, she would just follow it to the end. It might uh, not take her nearly as long, but she was lightning fast. So, I can't even imagine, really. <laughs> yes, she was fast, but she was also um, incredibly industrious. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. She and her crew worked around the clock for Bill Donovan, yes. and they cracked those codes within a matter of weeks. Yes. Which is just phenomenal. Yeah. Just now, phenomenal. you know, and I don't think it really exhausted her. Um, like I said, William, of course, cracking uh, the purple Japanese code in the spring of 41, the pressure was immense. Um, and he just couldn't take it. I don't know if she ever felt that kind of pressure or if she just, um, I mean, her little Coast Guard unit, they were sort of just their own bosses, you know? And often it's not like someone would lay a big task on them like, you've got to crack purple so we know what the Japanese are doing. She was the one who would find things and bring it to the attention of others and say, look, I'm seeing a shift in tone here. I'm seeing, you know, I'm seeing dots that are getting connected and they don't seem right. So, you know, she would create her own projects, really. That's a whole different kind of pressure. <laughs> well, I can't thank you enough for, um, bringing her story to a wider audience through the pages of Naval History Magazine. Um, it's a lot of fun. Yes, indeed. Uh, and it's a pleasure to have you in the magazine, and we hope to see you in it again. Thank you. Uh, your book for Naval and Sioux Press, uh, was that about Betty McIntosh? Sure was. Oh, yes. I got to meet her. Uh, Did I you? Bet you? I bet you enjoyed writing that book because she was quite oh, a yeah. person. You know, I, I knew her the last five years of her life, and uh, she's extraordinary. Just an unassuming little woman, um, lived to be a hundred, so smart, uh, so funny. And you know, the day of 9-11, she called up the CIA and demanded to be put back to work. So from her little uh, retirement community, she was a delight and a pistol. I look forward to reading your book on her as well. Um, for those listening and viewing, um, 
Betty McIntosh was in um, the OSS in World War II, and she wrote the um, best-selling Naval Institute Press book, Sisterhood of Spies, which I mm -hmm. recommend if you're interested in this topic. And I have to this day the OSS patch that she gave me. Oh, uh, you lucky thing. Part. I know. <laughs> nice little possession to have. Well, thank you again, Anne, so much for um, the article and for joining us. Oh, the pleasure was mine. This was delightful. Thank you. And also a great thanks to uh, the National Museum of the Pacific War for uh, hosting this podcast on our guest's end. Um, oh, absolutely. These guys have been great. Really just great. This is an awesome like museum. If you haven't been here, come check it out. Yep. If you like the kind of things that Naval History publishes, that's a museum that you need to have on your list yeah. to get to at some point, as do we all. Well, thanks again. And on behalf of uh, Bill and myself, um, bid you farewell. And uh, thanks for a great uh, podcast, Ann. It's been a wonderful pleasure talking with you. Yeah, this was fascinating and a great article. All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Uh, we'll ask one more time, if you, if you enjoy the podcast, if you enjoy what the Naval Institute does, uh, please join us. Uh, go to usni.org forward slash join because our members are the foundation of everything we do at the Naval Institute. Until next week, have a great one.